Hello friends, this is the AlphaList podcast. I am your host Toby. The goal of the AlphaList podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I'm your host, Toby, and my guest today I'm actually looking forward to for ages is called Cullen James Henderson Beck. I just found on Wikipedia, and uh, people know <laughs> him as Cal Henderson, um, and he's an O'Reilly author. He is author of the book Building Scalable Websites, and he's former chief architect of Flickr, and uh, the, the biggest role I think people know him for is that he's actually the co-founder and CTO of Slack. So um, from my perspective, one of the most sticky applications. So today I want to talk to him about sticky applications. Um, Kel, can you maybe tell us a bit more about yourself um, and also like how you how you get into the, the big game of, of being CTO and, and your nerd path? Yeah, sure. Um, so I... I guess going back a long way into the past. Uh, when I was a kid, I uh, got exposed to computers and programming and um, realized that this is a way in which I can, it's super creative and I can make things and other people can see them and experience them. And I knew I wanted to be a programmer when I grew up. Um, and then in the kind of mid nineties, I got on the web for the first time and realized that it's this amazing platform for getting the things you build in front of other people. And so that other people can experience what you're doing, uh, what you're making. And I just fell in love with it then and was like, switched from I want to be a programmer to I want to be a programmer and make things on the web. And that's kind of how my career got started. Um, I just love making stuff. So, you know, worked worked in the web industry now for, for a long time. Um, I just really enjoyed creating stuff. I got um, matched up with my, my co-founders, um, in the very early 2000s, um, so my one of my co-founders, Stuart, the CEO of Slack, we've been working together across a bunch of different projects now for the last 20 years, and it started with video games. We um, He had started a company to make an online web-based video game that uh, was called Game Never Ending. Uh, it was a, a poor choice of names because it did end shortly after it started. Uh, but this very <laughs> small team was just doing incredibly interesting technical work and creative work. Uh, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine now in 2022, but online games where multiple people played with each other just were not a thing, uh, you know, in like 2001, 2002. And playing a game in the browser definitely wasn't a thing. And they were doing really interesting things with technology to make it seem real time and you had an experience with other people. Um, and it was interesting from a like creative artistic point of view as well. It was a really interesting social experience and I just wanted to be part of it. And so um, <laughs> I, I harassed the company until until I could be part of it. Um, and, and that's how it kind of got kicked off. And that 
Game didn't work out, but it turned into Flickr. We did Flickr for quite a while. Went back, tried to make games again. The second game didn't work out, and it turned into Slack. So it's a, it's a very roundabout way that we've ended up where we are today. So uh, how, how did you come to the idea of Flickr initially? Was it inspired by that um, uh, very old um, free script? I think it was called Gallery and PHP or something where you thought, okay, let's just make it a service and let's just make it good or great. <laughs> or how did that, how did that yeah, come? Yeah, it was, uh, it, it's a funny story. Um, Flickr actually started as a, um, a real-time chat room where you could share photos with people by dragging them into the chat window. So uh, it was much more like Slack than it was like the Flickr that, that eventually came out. Um, and I don't know where the inspiration for that came from, but it was a really interesting idea. It was like real-time chat in the browser built in Flash, uh, you know, which was the only way to do that at the time, and you could share photos. And we were really excited about the product. We built it really quickly, launched it, and then fairly quickly realized that you had to be online at the same time as other people if you wanted to use it. And this was in an era, this was early 2004, where people weren't online all the time um, and they weren't online doing social activities with their friends all the time. And so we realized we should have like an asynchronous portion to this product as well. And we started putting photos on web pages. So you could upload a photo and have it on a web page and then share that with somebody else. And it seems astonishing now, but that at the time in 2004, we were really the first people to let you do that. Um, there was a couple of, uh, there was a, a small site in Brazil, I think that kind of came before, but at the time, digital photos were just taking off for the first time. People had point-and-shoot digital cameras. Um, they were just starting to gain momentum. Um, and within the next couple of years, cell phones would start to have cameras for the very first time. But So people were taking a lot of digital photos but didn't have anything to do with them. You could have them printed uh, or you could get them you know, printed like a regular photo, uh, or you could have them printed on like a mug or a mouse pad or something like that. But that was kind of the limits of what, what you could do with digital photos. And we just happened to be there at the right time with this explosion of people taking digital photos and nobody really having anything to do with all of these photos they were taking. And we let people put them on the web for the first time. Um, and so it just, it uh, spiraled in popularity, I guess. And then was acquired? And what happened then? Yeah. So the original idea um, for Flickr as a business was that we would quickly build this business on the side um, and it would make some revenue and that would let us focus on building the game or really fund building the game. Um, and it, in many ways, it just got too popular. And we realized that uh, we were onto, really onto something with Flickr and that it could grow and be a, like, large growing business by itself. So we, we unfortunately, well, in retrospect, very fortunately, but at the time, reluctantly shelved the game and said, okay, we're going to focus on Flickr. And we did that really for about another year before it got large enough that um, we were either going to be raising capital uh, or be acquired. And at the time, we chose to be acquired um, by Yahoo. Um, and as part of that, uh, we moved, we were based in Canada, um, and we moved down to the Bay Area um, to, to Silicon Valley uh, with the Yahoo acquisition, and it became became part of Yahoo, um, and uh, and it grew there. Well, uh, for the next four years, um, I, I spent the next four years at Yahoo, um, growing Flickr um, from what was at the time of the acquisition fairly small and a fairly niche um, website into 
you know, during its first few years at Yahoo was a really large um, kind of photo-oriented social network. And for a little while was larger and growing faster than Facebook. But uh, but unfortunately, we, we did keep that crown for long. Okay. Um, back then, I mean, I, I remember like my early days on, on Flickr as well. It was a very sticky application. And I, I think like Slack now is one of the stickiest applications that, that I know from a user perspective and also mm -hmm. like from a, from a CTO's perspective. It's really, it really like goes into the nervous system of your company and, 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 and stays there for a very long time. And you, you, you will never want to, want to get off again. Do you have like a secret recipe um, of, of how you build really sticky websites? I mean, you, you, you told people about your, your recipe of building scalable websites, but is there one <laughs> for, for stickiness? Um, I, I think, uh, I think it's fairly straightforward in, you know, a disappointing way. There isn't some amazing secret source. And, uh, the, the way to do it is spend a lot of time talking to customers and users and listening to their feedback. We spent, um, early on in the Flickr days, uh, everybody who joined Flickr, uh, because at the time it was kind of more real time, was personally greeted by somebody who worked at Flickr and kind of given a tour of how to do things. I know that this is this has been replicated kind of a lot since with the idea of doing unscalable things at the at the beginning uh, of a company. But it was we're very hands on with customers. Um, talking to people who were using it, understanding what they liked, what they didn't, what the frustrations were, and That's definitely something that we've done over the last decade with Slack as well. We spent a huge amount of time talking to customers, lis listening to customer feedback, synthesizing that and, and building, you know, our prioritization of what we're going to do next, what we're going to improve, what we're going to invest in based on that feedback. I think for people building anything today, the most important tool um, and the most overlooked tool that anybody has kind of in their, in their toolbox is Twitter. As Twitter has really changed the changed the game on being able to talk to customers. So, if you built a product, or if you if you used a product, like you tried a new bit of software, um, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, um, and you found it frustrating. There's something bad about it. Like the onboarding experience was confusing. It was buggy. You didn't understand how to use something. You would stop using it. And maybe you would tell your friends that you found it annoying and it wasn't very good, but probably not. You'd, uh, the, the threshold to like write into customer support and say, your product is bad and here's why I think it's bad is incredibly high. People, you know, regular people just don't do that. But then Twitter came along. And if you are slightly annoyed by something um, or frustrated or even impressed and you like something, the threshold to going online and talking about that and sharing that with the world is really low. And that's such a good source of, um, of customer, kind of unfiltered customer feedback that more startups, more product companies should be using. Um, we, we look at every tweet uh, that talks about Slack, and we have done since the beginning of the company. And that is, at this point, millions and millions of pieces of customer feedback. Um, And it's just an invaluable source of customer research of, you know, unfiltered joy and unfiltered misery um, that we have used so much in prioritizing uh, and understanding how we should evolve the product as we go. I think there's this, the, the kind of, that, that counters this idea that, uh, that great products are built 
by people who are product visionaries who are amazing product designers. That part is also sort of true, but nobody is so good that they're going to design first the best possible product. It's always got to be, you know, make make an educated guess, get a lot of feedback, make another educated guess, get a lot of feedback. And that that kind of iteration cycle that involves looking at uh, what your customers are doing, listening to what they're saying, understanding the the problems that they're having. Um, it's the customer feedback is just the most important thing in, in kind of anything that's built for customers. But isn't it somehow a combination of, of having that genius who every once in a while comes up with a, like a, a big idea um, and then validating it with customers? Um, I, I, I think you still need that 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 person. Yeah, right? I mean, um, yeah. You, I mean, you can't you can't randomly generate ideas, um, you know, to to reach success. Um, there there is there is definitely a portion of that. But I think when you look at really well designed products, or, or certainly ones that have reached like some level of broad success, what you don't see there is all the times when they built something the wrong way or had something that was broken or confusing because they've iterated towards that, um, that, you know, great product experience. And similarly, the people who are designing them, you know, the, the designers, the product managers, the engineers, the whatever it is behind those products and services, they had great ideas, but they also had a whole bunch of terrible ideas and they tried those out and then they moved on. And so I think that's the, um, that there is definitely, you know, skill or taste involved in, in great consumer product design. Um, but there's also a willingness to iterate and not be like so wedded to your first idea that you can't try something new or that, you know, you won't throw things away when they're not working. And so uh, it's not, it's, you know, it's the same thing that it's successful companies aren't usually because somebody had an amazing idea. It's because they, it, they iterated and they executed. Because you know there are there are a lot of people out there with with great ideas, but it doesn't mean anything if you can't put it into practice. And then if you can't be flexible around evolving that idea as you get feedback, then then you're just not going to reach that same level of success. Nobody is right 100% of the time, um, you know. And when you look at really successful products, really successful companies, they definitely weren't right 100% of the time, um, but they did course correct. And I think that's becoming increasingly important i think in general as kind of work becomes more complex and uh you know the technology and uh, competitive environment becomes more complex um is that there's so many choices that need to be made so many changes in direction and that you have to be increasingly kind of nimble agile small a agile um to be able to change direction and so the the factors that really matter is really how quickly you can change direction align you know, the vision of your product, your company around that change in direction and, and keep being able to respond to feedback rather than getting, you know, stuck in, stuck in what you're sure is the best way to do things. I don't know. So, so it's, it's essentially all about execution, right? Um, I mean, that, that's essentially it, that you, that you have maybe an idea at the start. I mean, mm -hmm. let, let's face it, like, um, Slack is, is is a bit like a reinvention of IRC, right? And oh, you, you had, just had yeah. that idea of, at a certain moment. <laughs> I mean, uh, turning that into a business is kind of a genius idea, right? Um, it's, yeah, and I think Slack's a perfect example here, both in that the product that we have now is not, you know, is pretty different from what we originally built. Uh, even ignoring the four years we spent making a video game, that's very different. But you know, the product has evolved um, pretty substantially. But also, it wasn't. Uh, like a brand new idea. 
there was IRC in the late 80s, and I used it a ton in the 90s. Um, and there's, you know, there'd been web-based things as well, like Campfire had been around, HipChat existed, there were other web-based, you know, like forums have been around for a really long time, and it's, a con- you know, took concepts from all of those. It is execution and iteration. It is, I, I also don't want to da- downplay how much it is the luck of timing. Timing is hugely important. Um, when when I look at either Flickr or Slack, if we had done the same thing a few years earlier, it wouldn't have been successful. And if we'd done it a few years later, we probably would have missed the boat and somebody else would have been there. And you know, in the case of Slack, there's a lot of external factors that all came together at just, just the right time. And usually it doesn't come down to like the day or the week or the month, but definitely the year. Um, for Slack, you know, we had a few different trends. One was the uh, kind of the rise of consumer messaging in the consumer space. So the idea that you you don't email your friends anymore, um, you know, you you text them or use uh, WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger or WeChat or whatever. Um, so the people were a lot more used to moving from email, which is super formal, to to messengers and. Messenger apps were very familiar to people. At the same time, there's this huge explosion of um, using software in the workplace. We went from workplaces went from buying just a few pieces of software from large vendors to buying now hundreds or thousands of different apps and services. You know, really driven by the SaaS model. Um, and then there's the kind of consumerization of the enterprise because of the rise of smartphones of um, the rise of smartphones and social media that meant people have this really high bar for user experience that's been driven by the consumer side because they install apps on their phone and that has to be a great experience because that's how it captures users and makes money. Um, That people have this expectation of great user experience for the things they use in their personal lives and then starting to have that expectation in the workplace. And so um, it's, it's, no longer like a, a supposition. It's just how a lot of enterprise software works now. But we wanted to build something that people would love to use as opposed to would be easy to sell into companies. Um, and we, I mean, we didn't know any better. That's one of the reasons is we knew how to make consumer software and consumer experiences. So we just did that for the workplace. And now that's, you know, like having freemium software um, for work is pretty standard. You know, almost everybody does that. But a decade ago, that was a, a novel idea. But we lucked into the timing of that. It's not like we created that category or anything. It was coming uh, just because of the kind of secular trends of how technology and its relation to the workplace was changing. So all that said, timing is hugely important. It plays, I think, the biggest factor um, in the success of the companies that I've worked on. Um, timing, Timing matters so much. And some of that's luck, some of that's skill. You know, you see the trends, you you attach yourselves to it. Um, but it's, uh, but it's a lot of luck. Um, you just mentioned, mentioned campfire, um, which was actually uh, a tool built by, by 37 signals back then. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. like I think way earlier than Slack. Um, yes. And oh yeah. Like, and you, and you said like timing is very important. Um, I would also add maybe focus is also important. Um, because the the company was building multiple products, or why did they fail with 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 Campfire, or why did didn't they continue um, building it? Uh, yeah, it's a good question, and you know, a better question for for David or Jason than it is for me about why why they discontinued that product. And I think the original discontinue of Campfire was about six months into us having launched Slack. So you know, they were contemporaneous. It's not you know, it's not like they were in different decades or something. Um, 
and it, it could be focus. It could also be, you know, while they are similar kind of products from a mechanical point of view, um, it was different in the audience we were going after, perhaps, or, you know, the the they have the channel-based piece, but the kind of two concepts at Slack from the beginning were channel-based, but also bringing in all of the other apps you use via the APIs and the platform. And I think that um, that made it a a kind of different category of, of application. It was filling a different need. That, and, you know, we're concentrated on, on user experience so that you could have your non-engineers in there and it didn't feel so much of a, like, a web-based IRC product. But honestly, who knows? It was our only product. It was the only thing we were doing. And so that does does have a big, big advantage over, you know, one of a stable of products that you're building. Um, it doesn't always work, obviously, because we had been unsuccessful in our in our previous game product, and that was all we were doing as well. Um, but having a singular focus means you're much more likely to iterate on it until it's successful. Um, you know, obviously, it's been 37 signals now. Basecamp have been really successful, um, and some of that was having a few products and then seeing which one resonated the most and then doubling down on it. Okay, thanks a lot. I actually had um, David in the in the podcast here twice, yeah. I think. Um, and <laughs> in the first podcast, he he actually ranted heavily against notifications, <laughs> uh -huh. from, like especially from Apple Watch, but also from Slack, and how that that essentially destroys your brain uh, and makes you makes you defocus. And I, I think, like for some jobs, like for developers potentially, um, this mm -hmm. this is also true because you need lo those those large blocks of of uninterrupted uninter uninterrupted deep work. Um, mm -hmm. How do you think about that? And also the right to be offline as someone who who builds like a, a product that like fires a lot of notifications. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. And obviously, David's point of view is going to be somewhat grounded in his business and who he competes with. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's not uh, like, you know, completely wrong point. And definitely, when I look at the way I we at Slack use Slack, it is important to be able to disconnect and it not be, uh, you know, whether that's outside of working hours. So, you know, you're able to set boundaries and have good work-life balance or kind of, as you say, when, when there are periods where you want to do deep work and stay focused. And so, you know, there, there are kind of two sides to that or, or a bunch of things that, that we provide within product, but, uh, and talk, I'll talk about those, but I think it's still largely a case of um, how organizations use tools culturally. Um, so when, uh, when Flickr was acquired by Yahoo at the time, Yahoo was, um, very heavily into using Yahoo messenger. Uh, so Yahoo messenger, like, like aim, AOL messenger, like MSN, like ICQ at the time was, you know, mostly one-to-one -one messenger. There was some group stuff, but nearly everybody just used it one-to-one -one. and the, uh, Yahoo as a camp company ran on it and you'd get DM'd constantly all day from people all around the company. Um, And there was uh, there were definitely things that were frustrating about the way the company chose to use the product. Uh, the message that was sent the most, like thousands of times a day, was YT, which means "Are you there?" Uh, instead of sending somebody a message, you would ask if they were there first, which was such a such a weird um, kind of interaction of of time wasting um, of uh, you know like sending a preamble before every message, um, and that was felt very interrupty. Um, 
something that we wanted to do with Slack was that it's um, similar to how people, some people used IRC, was that it's great for both synchronous, but it's also fine for asynchronous. Like I can put a message up there, you can read it 12 hours later and respond to it, and I can read that response 12 hours later, or we can be talking in real time. But it's very much, that's all dependent on how you choose to use it as a tool. And so, for instance, within Slack, we're very... um, very good about setting our do not disturb hours. So we know people won't get notified um, outside of outside of working hours. We use custom status within Slack to say when people are busy. Many people have it hooked up to their calendar. So it will let you know if somebody's in a meeting or if somebody's uh, working on a project and, you know, and isn't available right now. Um, and you can uh, silence notifications within Slack for a custom period of time or until a certain date. Um, and we uh, we do use that liberally, saying you know like for the next two hours, I just need to focus on on this writing this document, writing this piece of code, and so I'm not going to receive any notifications. Um, I think it's you know philosophically what we built in the product is the idea that you can message anybody at any time, and it's up to them to choose when they want to see the notifications around it. And so long as you know uh, whether they're going to get notified or whether you need to. Uh, you know, escalate it via another channel because this is an emergency and you really need to get in contact with somebody. Um, I think that works really well if people choose to set it up like that. Um, the, I think it is also, you know, while Slack for Slack customers can be a big part of that, it is just a growing trend in, in uh, kind of the way software and especially kind of um, cell phones have, have bought themselves into our lives and the, and the place they have there with this, the, the idea that t- 20 years ago, there was a difference between being at home and being at work. Um, and, you know, m- not many people were online all of the time outside of the office. Um, but increasingly over the last decade, there's this idea that everyone is semi-working all of the time. You're always kind of available. You always have a phone with you. You're always online. Um, and I think ultimately that's not super healthy for work-life balance. Um, we, within Slack, the company, strongly encourage people to have a good, clean separation between when you're at work and when you're not, when you're available and when you're not. I think that's been especially difficult for people over the last couple of years um, with the pandemic of, you know, you're you're no longer even changing locations between when you're at work and when you're not. So that's increasingly important to define those boundaries. I'm really careful about doing that myself. Uh, Like you, I have two young kids um, and I want to make sure I'm carving out the time to spend with them and not always just half working on my phone. And so I think that is, it's a cultural issue, you know, as much as it is a technology one around how we, how we choose to structure our working lives and our personal lives. That said, or, you know, with that as a backdrop, something that we've, we've done at Slack within our engineering and product organization for quite a while now is, um every what is it now every six weeks we have a um a a week where we get rid of all recurring meetings um and we we call these a maker week where you just where engineers can just focus on writing code like for a whole week no interruptions and you know maybe you're you're collaborating with some colleagues on something that you're working on but allowing that deep focus and we also do that uh kind of every friday as well um and in some ways, like you, you need time for doing that deep work, whether it's engineering, whether it's document writing, research, you know, the, the kind of pure individual work um, or, you know, like focused work time. 
but a lot of it is not, I think is not necessarily, maybe this is what David was getting at as well, is not, not necessarily not having meetings or doing other supporting work because increasingly like making software products is collaborative. You need to spend a lot of time with other people. Um, but that having contiguous blocks of focus time is the really difficult part. You know, it doesn't matter if if 30% of your time is spent in meetings, if that 30% is spread out evenly throughout all of your days, uh, because that just means you don't get any blocks of focus. And I think having those blocks of focus time is really important. Yeah, that is what I also realized. I, I'm using a tool called Reclaim AI for a while. Um, and it, it's, it's, really, it's really brilliant that you can, I mean, you can do it manually as well, that you can just schedule or have a tool that just schedules focus time for you. Um, and tries to, uh, to like do that in a connected way um, and tries to put your one-on-one somewhere else and so on. That's, that's really brilliant. And um, that's what I, what I realized that I have so much more time when I actually plan focus time um, mm -hmm. than I had before um, and so much more focus on, on stuff that's, that's, that's really great. Um, and uh, like one thing that um, I actually admire Slack for is the, the fact that you actually build in all the features that most uh, mobile messaging tools like in europe um whatsapp is quite quite popular mm -hmm. um, all the features that whatsapp has for a while like voice messages video messages and so on that you build it into slack as well because i essentially don't wanna 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 want, want people to take the shortcut to my brain through just sending me a whatsapp um and um, in Slack, I can actually configure when I'm available and when I'm not. So that that's that's way better from my perspective. So that that kudos for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's yeah twofold. You have a lot more customization around choosing when to be notified, and you know you can use Slack in a batch mode. Um, but the other thing that you know Slack, depending on how organizations use it, forces people to do is because of the channel structure, it forces some of the categorization on the sender instead of just the receiver. You know, if you think about your email inbox, everybody just sends you email to an address. It's up to you to figure out, you know, maybe you're one of these people who has a tons of rules and folders and labels, or maybe you're the person who, you know, one of the people who just has this massive undifferentiated pile of email that they slog through every day. But, you know, a, a channel-based tool like Slack forces the sender to think, is this for you directly? Is it about a project? Is it for my whole team? And to you know to categorize it and put it at least somewhat in the right place, which really helps on the consuming side because I can say, well, this DM from my boss, okay, I'm going to read that uh, and I can read that first and then my team channel and the project I'm working on channel. And then maybe I can leave these other channels for another day and maybe I'll read them once a week because I find this interesting. Or in fact, I'm just going to ignore this because for the next couple of months, I don't care about what's going on in that channel. And that, like forcing some of the categorization on the sender, I think is, uh, is a very small piece, but is, is pretty key in making it more manageable. So uh, be, before we before we talk about the, the tech stack um, you, mm -hmm. you, you, you've built, um, like just quickly, um, just a bit provocative. How do you want to want to make sure that, um, like after being acquired by Salesforce, you don't end up similar to Heroku? Um, like, sorry for <laughs> being, being provocative here, but I mean, you 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 know, like what happened there, and uh, you also know what 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 happened to Flickr at the end. Mm -hmm. And I guess you're very committed as as a founder team. How, how do you make sure that the, the the product continues to be great? Um, yeah, it, it's a great question. I think you know, like 
answering the Flickr question first is not every product is going to be great forever or kind of have prime spot forever. Um, you know, and in the case of Flickr, Flickr's 20 years old at this point, just coming up on it. And so, uh, and, and not just that, but the kind of the world, uh, moved on in terms of the products that people were looking for. You know, Flickr was a place to archive your digital photos so that you could share them with other people. And these days we have kind of Google Photos and iCloud for the storage portion without sharing it. And people text photos and, you know, photography as a social network is just not, uh, you know, not as big a concept as, you know, as it, as it was 15 years ago. And so it's okay that it's not, you know, that it, that it's not huge and nothing, not everything has to, has to kind of last forever in the, in the same state or keep growing. The, that said, I love Flickr as a product, um, but I haven't, I haven't been working on it for the last 15 years. So it's been a, it's been a long time. Um, Slack, the, I think the only way products stay high quality and relevant is if they have great people working on them who, who love the product um, and, and it can be a sustainable business. Um, you know, the having worked, failed twice in games and then worked on the consumer side in Flickr, something that's really great about Slack is the business is so straightforward. We make software and sell it for money and people pay for it because it's useful. And that that just makes makes everything much easier. There's no tension between how we make money and what users want to do with the product. You know, because it's not, ad supported consumer side there's no there's just no tension there which is which is a really nice thing to have um and the it's you know been working on on slack for a long time but it still brings a really big amount of kind of day-to-day joy to me and you know and the other people on the founding team still the you know as successful as we've been as much of it's grown and you know all these organizations use use it to to run their organizations around the world Still the, like I go into a coffee shop and I see somebody using Slack on their laptop and I don't know what they're doing for work. I don't know what they're working on. I don't know who they are, but I see them tapping away on Slack. It just brings so much kind of joy to see that impact that, that our work has out in the world, that it's just addictive to want to keep working on that. It just has, you know, it's not, it has an influence on so many people. Um, And that's, that's hard to ever give up. Thanks a lot. Yeah, and, and sorry for being provocative. So um, no, no, it's all good. <laughs> can you tell us a bit more about your tech stack? Um, I mean, are you using PHP? You're using Electron. That's most most people know actually in the mobile world that that you're one of one of the most most popular Electron users. Um, what what else um, does does yeah. this stack consist of? Yeah. So we have we have. You know, it's a server client server model. We have three different client code bases. There is the the desktop and web client, which is really the same code base. So you can use it in a modern browser, or you can use it in our desktop app, which is Electron. So that runs on Chrome. Um, when we were uh, Electron started a little bit after after we started Slack, and we spent the first couple of years trying to find the right technology for for a cross platform desktop app where we where it was still running our web app because um slack is it turns out hugely complicated there's a lot of there's a lot of features that most people aren't exposed to that especially on the enterprise security administration compliance side um and there's a huge amount of surface area there having to uh 
only build as we do today three client code bases instead of uh instead of what would be six maybe if we didn't have a cross-platform desktop app um is such a huge uh lever for us especially early on um so we we're really happy with electron when it came out and you know have worked a lot with contributing back to electron i'm really happy to see where it's at today um in terms of you know vs code ending up so popular and, and the contributions back from that as well um, as just sad to see the uh, the announcement that Atom is no more in the last couple of days, so that you know really kicked everything off. So so we're Electron Electron on the desktop. Um, and we have native iOS and Android clients. They are completely separate code bases, completely native, and and always have been. Um, the iOS uh, iOS code base is basically entirely Swift at this point, um, and the Android code base is kind of half and half Java and Kotlin. In the old days, we used to have a, uh, a Windows Phone client as well that was uh, written in C Sharp, um, but uh, we discontinued that kind of when when Windows Phone got discontinued. Although somehow still we have a like very low number of uh, weekly active users who are still using our last Windows Phone build on their remaining Windows phones, which is kind of funny. Um, and and sometimes sometimes maybe also not too, too nice, right? <laughs> if you have to maintain that, um, or yeah, well, I mean that. That one is it's it's kind of astonishing that it still works, honestly, because we haven't put out a patch for that in many years. Um, you know, the operating system hasn't received any updates, but you're still able to connect to Slack using using clients that old, technically, um, even though we we haven't supported them for a long time. Um, then, kind of on on the back end, we have the, I mean, today you know Slack runs on. Uh, you know, hundreds of different services um, doing, you know, all kinds of different bits of coordination of different features of the service. But say the core of it is two, two constellations of services. One is the, um, the kind of web-based RPC style API that powers most of Slack and is the, you know, powers the website as well. And then there's the real-time system, which uh, is a web, which is WebSocket based. So when a Slack client starts up a session, it establishes a WebSocket the Slack servers and gets events in real time. So if you're sending me a message, I get that pushed to me over a WebSocket. Um, and the the web app side started in PHP, um, but for the last, I don't know, five years has been Hacklang, which is a Facebook's typed PHP running on HHVM. And we're entirely like strict typed Hacklang these days uh, for all of our, for, for our kind of um, web app code base. That's our, our biggest code base at Slack. And then on the real-time side, it's a constellation of different servers that run in you know, um, many data centers around the world so that you're connecting to something close to you um, that are a, a constellation of services written in uh, some in Java and some in Go that handle all of the, that WebSocket and event fan out and event replay. Okay, so it's all proprietary, or is there like one large backbone for PubSub in the in the background, or is there it's, actually IRC running somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, and I mean Slack today is orders of magnitude bigger than IRC ever was, even at its peak. Um, it's all proprietary, so all of the kind of um, the fan out, the PubSub, the message distribution pieces is all proprietary, and we deliver you know, uh, a very high volume of messages a second, 24-7. So it's a, a very big, uh, like, high volume uh, distributed system that's all custom to Slack. Do you, do you have, like, a peak number you you, you can actually announce? Um, I'm not sure I have any numbers I'm allowed to share. Uh, we should we should do a stats and, you know, a, like, internal stats 
post at some point to talk about you know uh, messages per second and events per second. Um, but it's uh, it's some very high numbers for for kind of any any real time system. But nothing I can share today, unfortunately. It's somewhere in the millions, I guess. Then, right? Yeah, um, yeah definitely in the millions. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, very interesting. And, and do you run on on Kubernetes or like, how, do yeah, you, how do you actually maintain this? Yeah, I mean, historically, because we you know predate um, Kube, we're we were um, VMs. We're we're an AWS. Uh, you know that we're we run almost entirely on AWS, and we used to be entirely VMs. Um, Today it's a mix. Um, we have a lot of services, um, especially stateless services that run on Kube, um, and we still have a lot of VMs as well. We've been moving more towards more towards container-based and then container-based running on Kubernetes, um, and that's the general direction we're going for for most things. So thanks a lot. Um, really, really yeah. interesting. Like, <laughs> I'd love to do an internship at Slack maybe at a certain point. Um, <laughs> do you do you have uh, a tool like? I mean, we're all nerds in a way. Um, yeah. And I myself, I discover a tool every every few months that I really love and uh, annoy all my friends with. Do you have like such a tool that you like really fell in love with? Like maybe some open source or something. Um, I think one of the things that I've I've liked most that is uh, we we built one ourselves, but there are definitely open source alternatives. Um, is uh, we our, our internal kind of data warehouse runs on um, like Hive and Presto, um, and that contains all of our all of our log data and all of our kind of primary database data. And early on um, at Slack, and I think there's a Twitter thread about this somewhere recently. Um, somebody created a web page uh, where you could enter a SQL query, um, run it against our data warehouse that might take seconds or might take minutes, depending on how much data it's looking over, and then we'll give you tabular data back or turn it into really simple graphs. Um, and then you can, within Slack, if you work at Slack, you can paste the URL to that uh, to that query into Slack, and we will show the graph in line um, or show the data table in line by uh, using custom unfurling, which is an API feature in Slack. And it is, it is such a under underappreciated productivity boost to be able to really like somebody asks you a question about something and you can just share the results and see it right there and it's coming live from the from the real data um, and it's such a time saver and there are things like you know using Apache superset or there's commercial products that do that as well um, but having that ability to answer kind of answer arbitrary questions about things that are happening in the product. And this could be, you know, events that are coming into a particular service or kinds of errors that are being thrown or number of customers who have done some kind of action or number of messages that fit some criteria sent in this time window. So it's kind of anything about the business that can be can be asked and answered. Although there's so like quite tight tight controls around actual customer data, which you can't access through that system. Um, but okay. I think that kind of internal analytics is is really important to being able to iterate and understand the products you're building. It's actually uh, also very very important if if you if you found your new company to have such a system in place, right? I I, I don't know if you know MetaBase, for example, it's open source but also commercial. Mm -hmm. Or IPython notebooks or Zeppelin notebooks that essentially goes into the same direction, right? Um, you, yes. So you build notebooks for, for, for Slack then. That's nice. 
Yeah, and yeah. and the you know the the notebook stuff that's happened in the last few years has been really good. And I know our like our data team is kind of shifting to more of the the notebook interface and hooking that up to our internal data. And I think that's now the essential thing that people need to do fairly early on. I think one of the it is both good and bad, but one of the big changes uh, over the last decade has been that the the number of if you're starting a web product company, the number of things that you have to do has just gone up massively, probably grown exponentially in terms of features that you have to provide to customers and tools uh, that you need to build or set up internally is is just much higher. And that, that's because you need to do that to be able to compete because other people are doing it too. But there's just such a set of rich tools available. You know, 20 years ago, when we were first building Flickr, there was nothing. You just had to invent all of that stuff yourself. Um, and now there's such a kind of rich community of people building tools, open source, commercial versions too, but sharing the techniques, uh, you know, like how you go about doing these things and what are the tools that you need to be able to understand services as you build them, you know, whether it's like logs and tracing and the evolution that that side has taken or internal data and how you look at how your products are being used and, and visualize that and tie all those data sources together. Um, it is... It is great that there's just all of these tools and all of these techniques that are now shared and that we can all use to make better products, make them faster, uh, you know, do it more, more reliably, more accurately. Uh, there's just all this supporting infrastructure and it only grows every day. It's it's hard to keep up with, but it's it's all good stuff to keep up with. It's great. Reminds me of PHP, my admin. <laughs> Man. So, um, like, apart from that. Do you have a productivity hack that that you would recommend everyone? Um, my productivity hack is going to be a Slack tip, I would say. Um, or, or a start with a Slack <laughs> tip. And that would be um, you should definitely use Command-K or Control-K to switch between channels. That's the quick switcher. Uh, you know, it's like the spotlight find on, on Mac OS. Um, and you can do Command-K, type a couple of characters, hit Enter, and switch to a channel. Um, and if you do that, then you can switch it so that the channels in your sidebar for Slack are only showing channels with unread messages. It's an option if you click on the little three dots by the channel list. And that means your channel list is, you know, things that you need to that you need to read. Um, and when you're going to a channel to send a message, you you quick switch there. And it just changes the mode completely of how people use Slack. Um, so that's my Slack tip. I'd say the other the other tip is um, be really intentional about disconnecting from work and you know like if if you're able to do that you can get more done when you work and have a much better work-life balance like you know especially if you work from home setting those boundaries between you know this is the morning and i'm not yet at work now i'm at work and now it's the end of my day and i'm not is can be really huge for productivity instead of you know being sort of productive all the time periods of intense focus are much easier if you have periods when you're not focusing and when you're able to disconnect and and think about something different um and that's not important for everyone every stage of their life you know when when i was younger uh, i spent a lot more time working uh but i think it's you know obviously become more important for me as i've as i've gotten older and further along in my career but also especially over the last couple of years being able to to disconnect to avoid avoid burning out is really important 
yeah, if you have kids, you will remember those words here. <laughs> so um, yeah. uh, then just like as a closing question, I have a little surprise for you. Your co-founder, Stuart, told me about a, a hidden feature in, in Slack, which is called the, the time machine command. Um, and it's very simple. You just have to hit slash time machine. Um, and we now hit slash time machine Cal in 2005, which was the time when you worked at, at Flickr together. Um, mm -hmm. And we observed yourself for a while now and travel back in time, observe yourself for a while. Um, and now you have the chance to whisper something into young Kel's ears. What would it be? <laughs> it's a, uh, this question is really difficult because, you know, on the one hand, we, we failed to, to make the game the second time that we really wanted to make. And we definitely made a lot of poor technical decisions early on in Slack and poor product decisions as well. You know, things which we later had to go back and fix or, you know, we still deal with the fallout of today. That said, it's hard to want to change anything because, you know, the if you make the perfect technical decisions, then, then you come up against other problems and who knows if we would have been able to tackle them. Um, you know, there, there's definitely some technical decisions that we made that maybe I'd maybe I'd hint that that isn't the way we should do things. So uh, the um, the biggest one for us that that took the longest time to unwind was when we first built the product. We thought that Slack would be for teams of five to fifty people, um, and a lot of the technical architecture was based around those assumptions. And that was a lot of data is sharded, sharded or petitioned by customer, which is great when your customers are small. And now we have customers who have millions of, uh, of users and millions of seats and billions of messages. And, uh, and we had to rethink totally our kind of sharding and partitioning strategy around data. Um, and also we added things later like Slack Connect share channels that, that uh, blur the boundaries between individual organizations. So there's some of those technical underpinnings pieces, but uh, it's also been an incredible last decade working on those problems. So I don't know. I just say uh, to myself, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, it's going to be a real fun ride. Work really hard. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks a lot, Cal, um, for, for being in the podcast. I really enjoyed the time with you um, and uh, wish you all the, the the luck in the world for, for Slack and uh, really looking forward to see what, what comes up next. Like I really love Huddles, for example. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah. I think you, you do amazing stuff there. So um, hope it all continues like this. Um, and uh, yeah, looking looking forward to, to maybe meet you um, whenever um, I, I'm in the US. Um, so thanks a lot. That'll be great. And thank you so much for having me today. It's been great. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Alphalist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. AlphaList is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or, as we say in Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.